Welcome to the Insider's Edge podcast here on the WZWA Network. I'm your host with the most on the West Coast, California Imperial. It's a joy, honor, and privilege to be with you all once again. And speaking of a joy, honor, and privilege right here, right now, I get the opportunity to talk to this man right here. This man right here, he's a writing machine, an author extraordinaire, a big kahuna producer. He's, he's found glory in becoming a historian. The multi-talented, the incomparable Mr. Keith Elliott Greenberg. How are you, sir? Hey, and great to be talking to all your friends down under. <laughs> Thanks for joining. Very, uh, very excited to learn about you and uh, your your life, uh, all these, these great things you've accomplished and what's going on with you today. Uh, first question, as per usual, though, Keith, but this is a wrestling show, so I need to ask you, how did you become a fan of professional wrestling? I never remember a time when I wasn't a fan. Uh, my grandparents were, uh, I guess you could call them true believers. They were both immigrants from the former Soviet Union. And when they were watching Bruno Sammartino do battle with the giants of the time, they truly believed that Bruno was the underdog and that he was fighting for every working man and woman in the city of New York. <laughs> That's excellent. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, as, as you, you, you start to grow up, you, you get, I guess you have more experiences. Uh, as you, you grow as a fan, can you tell me a little bit about some of those experiences? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say like everybody who listens or, you know, follows the show, I would say, you know, when you're 12, 13, 14, those are peak years of fandom. And I think everybody idealizes those years, regardless of when those years might be. I mean, somebody who was watching Monday Night Raw at age 11, three years ago, might consider that the golden age, you know, of, of uh, professional wrestling. And then, you know, when I began going out with girls, <laughs> I, I started to distance myself from wrestling a little bit. Not that I thought that it diminished me in any way. Uh, my interest shifted. And there were guys, who, and we all know them, who continued to be just as passionate because they hadn't replaced that with other passions yet or possibly ever. And then I would say I was in my early 20s, and I never fully turned my back on it. Like I can remember going back to Madison Square Garden to see certain events, even when I wasn't a week-to-week -week watcher anymore. Uh, I can remember being in Florida and going to a, a live event. And then I was in my early 20s, and I believe I turned on the TV Saturday morning, and something grabbed me again. And at that point, I was already a professional writer. So I thought, wow, not only... Uh, can I uh, watch this, but maybe I can make money watching this. And from that point forward, I've been 
you know, pretty involved. Excellent. So uh, you, you brought up you becoming a professional writer, and I, I guess I wanted to know, like, when did your interest in writing first come about? Like, when did you first realize, oh, I'm actually pretty good at this? I mean, I always was pretty good at it, but I thought that I would become an artist. I thought I was a better artist. I, I really wasn't. I was, um, I liked drawing cartoons for my friends, but I wasn't disciplined enough. And I remember there was a point where I'm like, well, if I'm not going to make it as an artist, because I was young, I was still a teenager. I remember I took a summer course on animation and I realized, you know, I'm just not as good as the other kids in the class. And my father was, he was a good artist, but he was, you know, he was a, a construction worker. He was a practical man. And he said, well, you're not going to be a businessman and you're not going to be a lawyer. So you're going to have to do something creative because, you know, you're not going to fit in and with, uh, with straight people. And he said, you know, you're not a bad writer, so I guess you better try your hand at that or you're hopeless. <laughs> and, that, and that's what happened. And by the time I was 19, I was starting to get articles published in, you know, small magazines or, you know, uh, fringe magazines. Right, cool. Yeah, I, can, I see some comparisons with you and I because I, I feel like I don't fit into a lot of things either. Um, but uh, I, I'm interested in, in in writing and all of that stuff, and uh, and obviously pro wrestling and a bit of rock and roll. I believe you're you're into that as well. Um, but I wanted to ask you about you know when was the first time that your writing became connected with pro wrestling? Um, I was. Um trying to contribute to Us Weekly, which is still, you know, a popular magazine in the United States. And I was fairly young and um, I kept pitching them stories. And the guy, I was, the guy, the editor kept saying, you know, you know, you're pitching me stuff and I don't really see any value in using you. I have a whole staff of writers. Like, what do you know about that nobody here knows about? And I guess he was trying to intimidate me. And I said, I know more about professional wrestling than anybody there. He goes, pitch me a wrestling story. And somehow I had found out that Bruno Sammartino was not very happy that his son, David Sammartino, was a professional wrestler. He had wanted David to go to college. And I pitched that story. He goes, well, now that's a good story. I grew up in New York. I, remember Bruno Sammartino selling out Madison Square Garden. And uh, I did that story, I interviewed Bruno, which was quite a thrill. I mean, it was, you know, I think it was my first national story and I'm interviewing a hero from my childhood and he's telling me very personal things and then gossiping with me about the inner workings of the wrestling business, you know, which <laughs> I never expected. And uh, that, that was published. And this is before the first WrestleMania. It's slightly before the, the WrestleMania year, a few years before. So at that point, professional wrestlers were not mainstream entertainers. They were fringe entertainers. So for those of us who followed, we knew who they were. But you very rarely saw a mention of a professional wrestler anywhere. It was so rare that I can remember, like if a professional wrestler was an extra on a TV show, I would watch it because it was such a novelty. 
even if it was a wrestler I wasn't all that familiar with. And so suddenly that gets published and people in the wrestling business notice it. So I then go to the New York Daily News, which was, might've been the number two uh, newspaper in the country in terms of circulation. And I pitched them a story on the professional wrestling phenomena. And there was no, Hulk Hogan was still working in Minnesota at that point. He wasn't back in WWE. And I said, well, you know, it never gets any mainstream publicity. It's on some, you know, late night network or Saturday morning TV. And they sell out Madison Square Garden every single month. That, I mean, at the very least, it's a New York phenomenon. And they say, yeah, okay, do it. So now I'm backstage at Madison Square Garden. And I remember like being nervous, like, well, what if they don't let me in? And the sports editor said, you're working for the New York Daily News. Of course, they're going to let you in. And I go backstage. They assign me a photographer. And some guy comes over and he says, oh, you're the guys with the Daily News. Wait here. We go into an empty locker room and he brings Bob Backlund in. I'm like, they just brought Bob Backlund to me. And once you get a taste like that in your mouth, you don't really want to go back. It's a little bit like... Um, if, you, if you've had sex for the first time and then, you know, you like say, you know, you can't really be, go back to celibacy. <laughs> so, you know, now I guess I was kind of in the wrestling business a little bit. Right. That's amazing. So, I mean, uh, th there is one section of your career that I was really excited to talk about. It's a little bit further down the line. Um, but <clears throat> when did you first start writing uh, for the WWF magazine? Uh, uh, and, and how was your relationship with Vince Russo as well? I don't know if you started writing before he was there. I, I don't oh, have that wait, time. Way line, before but... Vince Russo. Okay. Way before Vince Russo. But Vince Russo and I, I consider Vince Russo a friend. And this has nothing to do with wrestling. People yeah. are like, you consider Vince Russo your friend? On a personal level, man to man, friend to friend, I have great affection for Vince Russo. If Vince Russo called me up and he said his car was broken down, you know, 25 miles from here, I would find a way to rescue Vince Russo. And that <laughs> has nothing to do with any wrestling angle he ever came up with. Yeah. It's ju just a personal thing. But um, I, from that period that I just described, I, you know, started doing more stories with WWE. I think it, then it was the World Wrestling Federation. And now they knew who I was because, you know, these were two high profile articles that I'd done. So I remember there was like a kid's newspaper called Sports Now. It was put out by the Sporting News in the US. And I did something for them. And I just seemed to always be around it because, you know, I'm a mark. And then, um, at the first WrestleMania, Ed Rashuti, who was the editor of the new WWF magazine, and I were chatting at ringside. Ed was, um, he was a boxer and a martial artist. He was not a wrestling person, but he was a well-traveled, urbane man who understood the allure of the fighting arts and also understood 
the appeal on a, on a you know, a sheer emotional level of, uh, you know, these superheroes battling it out in a room and, you know, bringing people up, bringing people down, leaving them exhilarated. I mean, that was pretty much the talk we had. I remember I said, how much longer do you anticipate this trend will go on? Because at the time we thought, you know, the WWE craze was a fad. And he says, that ah, probably another two years. There'll be a WrestleMania two, then there'll be a WrestleMania three. And, you know, it won't be a good house. It'll be, you know, it'll be on the decline. And then after that, you know, it'll get dropped. People will move on to something else, which at the time made perfect sense to me. None of us thought it would still be going on. And he said, why don't you start writing for us? Which were, you know, very, maybe the most significant sentence I ever heard in my life. Why don't you start writing for us? And so there was a TV taping a few weeks later and um, Ed had set everything up. He arranged for me to be on a monthly retainer. And I remember I walked backstage in Poughkeepsie and Vince McMahon looked at me and gave like, a, like what's he doing back here? He knew who I was at that point, but he also knew I wasn't associated with them. And Ed Rashudi ran over to him because Vince was that accessible at the time and said, no, no, Vince, he's, he's working for us now. And Vince kind of looked satisfied and gave me a little smile and, and moved on. And so then I was working for WWE and I was on retainer for their magazines for 22 years. Wow, cool. I did the best I could with my research. Uh, so I had no idea about 22 years. It's amazing. Because uh, the best research that I could find, I've got a few visual aids here, Keith. Um, uh, you know, uh, Raw Magazine here. I, I, during during my research, I was uh, seeking out your name. Uh, we've got one an article you did here about Tyson. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, that's a very exciting time leading into that WrestleMania. Uh, yes. Absolutely. I'm just nerding out here with you to show you what managers, best managers of all time. Who's in there? Uh, this is the cover's got Sonny on it. Um, yeah. Best managers of all time. Like, did we go back? And, you know, I used to write so many articles for them. And I, I have all those magazines. They're on this property where I'm speaking to you. Right. I, I, um, in the attic. But uh, they've been in the attic in, in sealed containers, not in boxes, <laughs> uh, you know, for a long time. So... I don't often get a chance to look through those magazines. So who did I name as the best wrestlers of all time? Let's have a look. I'm, Sorry. I'm uh, there we go. I found it now. Uh, we've got uh, a tie for 10 for Miss Elizabeth and uh, Mr. Fuji. Okay. Got Bobby uh, at number eight. Jimmy Hart at number nine. Jim Cornette at seven. Paul Bearer at six. Arnold Scoland mm. at five. Mm. Uh, the Grand Wizard at three. Where's four? I think Freddie Blassie at four. Sonny at two. Captain Lou at number one. So there we okay. go. Okay. So, so I guess the directive I was given was <laughs> only WWE managers. Right. Like, I had to be. You know, I, and I didn't mention that, you know, Abdullah the Butch, um, that the Grand Wizard had been Abdullah Farouk. They were all people who'd been in WWE. Yeah. And I guess if you, if, if, you know, you're going to lose yourself in storyline, 
uh, Lou Albano had been manager of champions. So based on storyline success, Lou Albano would have been number one. <laughs> right. Very cool. Very cool. You know, in terms of favorites on that list, I mean, well, Blassie, I wrote a book with Blassie. So Blassie would probably be my favorite just personally. But Cornette, I still find Cornette immensely entertaining. <laughs> I might not agree with everything he says, much like Vince Russo. Interesting, the two of them hate each other, and I like both of them. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, I, I, Cornette is pretty great in terms of just listening to him, reading his comments. You know, he's still entertained as much as he did 30 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another great article here about uh, Mr. Pat Patterson right there. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, just wanted to take you out a little down a little trip down memory lane here, Keith. Uh, and then you have this one I thought looks interesting. How far is too far? And you got Blue Mini about. Oh, to... was this? This was, I think, the beginning of the attitude era. Yeah. And I <laughs> believe that was a Vince Russo idea. Right. Uh, how far is too far? <laughs> it's very good stuff. And uh, yeah. one about and, the and they had even at the yeah the rock was is it the rock's time? Yeah. Oh, it was. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there we go. A little ship down memory lane for some of the articles there that I'd yeah. seen in my collection. Yeah. But uh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Uh, so one thing I wanted to kind of ask as it pertains to this, uh, uh, what would the typical scenario be like for you to be assigned with a task, uh, and and you know how long did you have to get that task to completion? I mean, I was given a lot of leeway. I never was an office guy, fortunately for me. And I think that's why I lasted there as long as I did, because I wasn't in the office getting on people's nerves day to day, whereas other friends of mine were, and probably their shelf life would have lasted a bit longer if they weren't. And then there were guys like Tom Buchanan, the photographer, and Steve Taylor. They were just on the road like seven days a week. And they lasted a pretty long time. I mean, it's remarkable, you know, with every scenario and all that stress that they were dealing with, that they endured for that long. And, um, you know, but uh, so I would usually speak to whoever the editor was at the time. And at first it was Ed Rusciutti, then it was Vince Russo, then it was Barry Werner, who was the publisher. All of them became friends. And I, and I talk to all of them still. And um, we would brainstorm about these are the assignments we want you to do this month. And, you know, at a certain stage, we had Raw and first we had WWF magazine and then Raw magazine. Then we had Raw and SmackDown magazines. And sometimes they'd say, we're doing an annual report and we need, you know, a story about all the exciting storylines that have happened in the, you know, in WWE this year. And I would write that. So they'd have usually four or five things for me to do. <clears throat> Once in a while, they'd have something extra and would actually pay me extra. So I never had a complaint about the way I was paid over. And I still <clears throat> have a relationship with the company. Um, and so I would, um, you know, have a conversation on the phone usually. And um, then I would go, I would figure out which TVs I was going to go to. 
and I would calculate who would I get to speak to, you know, while, while I was in certain places. And if I, you know, they used to do Raw and SmackDown back to back, Mondays and Tuesdays. SmackDowns would be taped. And so I'd say, well, if I do this sweep where, I, where it's Raw and SmackDown, I can get to guys, you know, maybe I can get to everybody. Sometimes if it was a pay-per-view weekend, I would, I would try that too, because there were, there were more chances of grabbing people. I mean, and there was a period where I was just plain flat out making things up. But after a stage, particularly during the uh, Barry Werner year, because Barry Werner had been the sports editor of the New York Daily News. And he um, later worked at Fox Sports and worked at NBC Sports. So he treated it like real reporting. And he said, even if it's storyline, you need to talk with these guys, communicate with these guys, ask them questions that'll be woven in, find out what they want, what their voice is, what they're trying to say. And, uh, you know, that was good. You bonded with them doing that. And they trusted you. And <clears throat> they'd suggest something and then they would see it in the magazine. And, you know, once in a while, guys would be mad because the, either they would say, that's not how I expressed myself to you, or you'd have a lot of guys who were like, how come I'm never in the magazine? You know, these were guys who were more like mid-card guys. Like, why is it that this guy is in every month, but I, I, I haven't seen my name in there in like three months, you know? And... Um, it's funny because I ran into the one-man gang a few months ago, and he said, I don't remember you doing too much on me when, uh, when I was there. And I said, I do remember at least two stories I did on you, and I remember doing a Where Are They Now story with you after you left. I mean, he was friendly, but that stuff sticks in these guys' brains. <laughs> and then I would write the story. It was time for something else. And often... I would get a call and say, hey, I got remember 94, 93, Bob Backlund came back. He'd been estranged from the company. Now he came back as a baby face. He wasn't healed Bob Backlund. And they're like, Bob Backlund, I don't even remember who called me. Bob Backlund's back. And um, it's his first show back. And we need you to get up to Connecticut and interview him. And I was generally happy to drop everything and do it and probably still would be today. Really, really cool stuff. I'm, I just, to me, those, those kind of details is, is what my show is all about. I love learning about like that kind of process that you had to go through. So thank you for sharing. Um, so uh, I guess what, one thing I wanted to ask was you, as you had mentioned, uh, some people might complain uh, that they weren't in the magazine. Did, do you remember anyone specifically that would always keep pitching to you? Hey, Meg, just give me a chance. Give me a chance. I want to, I want to get. It get wasn't give me a chance because, you know, I impressed upon them. It wasn't my decision to make. Okay. And I can remember going to bat for specific people yeah. and saying, look, every time I'm backstage, this guy is always trying to get in the magazine. Is there something we can do on this guy? And sometimes it would be, but uh, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but you know, sometimes it would be a shorter story. Sometimes there'd be an element of the uh, performer's personal life that we'd end up getting in there. Like 
I remember there was one, Rico was a former police officer in Las Vegas, I believe. So we were able to do something about them. Or they get back from a tour of an exotic place and one guy who wouldn't get a lot of coverage would tell some good stories about being in that place. Or, you know, a, a tour he might've taken, you know, during an afternoon off. And so we'd, we'd get that in there. You know, we tried to accommodate. I never had a really nasty confrontation over the, that. There were some guys who did that. Understood, cool. Um, I want to start bringing up some of the books that you've been a part of uh, helping put together, uh, especially the one- and I that hope you'll out. plug my new book at the end of this. Yes, that, that's that's what I'm, I'm building all the way up to that. Um, we're, we're building towards that. <laughs> uh, February 2004, uh, working on Freddie Blassie's book, Listen You Pencil Neck Geeks. Uh, obviously you being a big fan of his, this must've been pretty uh, a, a it fun It was a project. thrill. And Freddie Blassie, at that stage, he was old. And mm. it was clear that he wasn't going to be around much longer. And he would go in and out. Sometimes he'd be forgetful. Sometimes he wouldn't remember something. And I'd make a note and bring it back, bring it up with him the next time we spoke. And then he'd remember. And um, it was the, his last chance to get all those stories out. And, his career went back to the 1930s and Freddie Blassie, you know, literally went back to the Carney days. I mean, in the carnivals, you know, and, uh, you know, he came from an era, he was a teenager. They put him in the ring. He didn't even know that it was a work, you know, and eventually he was schooled that way. And so to me, it was a luxury. It was an honor to tell history from someone whose career spanned from the carnival days, the roots of professional wrestling, to the pay-per-view era. And um, he had a notebook at home with beautiful handwriting, notebooks, plural. Um, and he kept diaries of his adventures on the road, meaning his in-ring adventures. He told plenty of uh, adventures about what went on after the show was over with various women and so forth, but the, he, he kept diaries of what was going on in his wrestling career at the time. And um, it was all there waiting for me. And three weeks after the book came out, he died. And so I truly felt that it was a privilege to tell the story. And I think out of all the wrestling books I did, um, that might be my favorite one. Awesome. Yeah, it must mean a lot because uh, these stories could have just been lost once. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I, look, I look at who else I interviewed for that book, because what I would do was and I did this with uh, all of my uh, wrestling biographies, uh, autobiographies. I'd have Blassie tell a story for a, a couple of pages and then someone else would step in who I'd interviewed and pick up the story. Then we'd go back to Blassie again. And Arnold Skoland is in that book. Killer Kowalski is in that book. Uh, Freddie Blassie's uh, longtime rival in the Los Angeles promotion, John Tolis is in that book. The Fabulous Moolah is in that book. Mike LaBelle, the promoter from Los Angeles is in that book. And um, for that matter, Vince McMahon is in that book telling stories. And um, 
you know, Vince is still around, but he's no longer, as we know, part of the day-to-day -day business. And uh, all those other people are gone. And those stories, you know, will never be told again because, you know, that page of history has been turned. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. It's really cool. And uh, I implore anyone out there, you should check that out. Uh, if Keith says it's his favorite, then there's a reason for it. I, I, it may be my favorite. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of May, May 2005, I've read this one to be the man. Uh, New York Times bestseller there, Rick Flair's book. Uh, how did you, how was the experience writing with Rick? Um, well, you know, I just reread it because WWE is doing a series of documentaries for the Peacock Network in the U.S. and still may be the WWE Network in Australia. I know yeah. they still have it in Europe. And um, so I, I had to reread it because they asked me to uh, be part of the Ric Flair segment. And it actually holds up a lot better than I thought it would. I was worried that it would seem out of date because so much has occurred since then. Um, Rick, I would have liked to have become better friends with Rick. I didn't bond with Rick the way I bonded with uh, Blassie and the way I bonded with superstar Billy Graham when I did his book and the way I bonded with the Iron Sheik when I did his book. And that book was never published and that's another story. But, um, but I feel that now looking back at it, that I captured, again, a period of time, particularly the pressure of being a touring NWA champion and what that title meant at the time. And, you know, back then the role of the NWA champion was you roll into a town or you get parachuted into a country and you, you know, battle the local uh, attraction whether, and that means sometimes you have to be heel, sometimes you have to be baby face. And oftentimes you would have a 60 minute match. I mean, the 60 minute man label, you know, there was a sexual connotation to it, but literally Ric Flair would battle for 60 minutes. I mean, night after night. And the goal was not to just have a, a fight like that, but to leave, even when you win, with your shine transferred to the headliner overnight to make that person into a bigger star than they were before. And that's an incredible amount of pressure. And, you know, I'm sure other NWA champions were good at it, but uh, I don't know if anyone was as generous with his opponents as Ric Flair. And there's a lot of people who we now regard as stars. And um, I don't know if they would have, been launched into that stratosphere without flair. Absolutely. Uh, another one that I wanted to bring up, we're getting very close to the, some of the more current stuff that you've been uh, doing, Keith, but I, I was interested in uh, the one that came out January 06, uh, Superstar Billy Graham's Tangled Ropes. Uh, how did you find working with Billy? Oh, I loved working with Billy. And that's also one of my favorites. Um, Billy and I, and I, I say this in the acknowledgements, the, the day we started working together, I remember uh, I met them in a parking lot somewhere. It might've been when I left the airport and I walked over to the car, Billy and his wife pulled up 
Billy's wife got out of the car and she gave me this big hug. And that was the tone of our relationship from that moment on. We were, we really were relating to each other like good friends. And something, he was not wrestling at the time and he didn't have a lot of obligations. So we had time together. And one thing we used to do, which was, you know, an, an invaluable experience is we would hang out in his living room and watch his matches. And he would give me play by play of what was going on in his mind at the time. And he'd go, now watch what Dusty's gonna do here. Look how Dusty just shakes his head a little bit. Like he's not, he's not selling my punch, but he's shaking his head, so he's selling it slightly. Like it's a hard blow, but Dusty's so tough, he's just gonna give me a head shake. And that really schooled me on the psychology behind every little move in the match. And recently I had a talk with a female wrestler, Molly Spartan, who's based in, um, in, in Scotland uh, on WrestleMania week. She and I had a good talk. We had to drive somewhere. Uh, and um, she was talking about that there should always be logic behind every little thing you do. For instance, if someone's going to dive on you, you just don't roll out of the ring. Something has to get you out of the ring. And that might mean you're in the ring with your opponent and you say, kick me. It's like, huh? Kick me. I need to be on the floor for that dive. And the average fan doesn't notice those little things. But when they look back on the match cumulatively, everything they saw in the back of their brains made sense. And that was really an education working with Billy and hearing, you know, that, that type of logic. And he was also a lot of fun. I mean, one story that I always laugh about was he, he and I were in a Mexican restaurant together in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And there was a very attractive young waitress came over and Billy says, um, yeah, I'm the former WWE champion and this is my co-author, I'm writing my biography. And she looked at us like, you guys are the biggest liars on earth. Like, <laughs> sure, you were the WWE champion and this like long haired guy with a New York accent is your co-author. I have never heard something so stupid my entire life. <laughs> Excellent stuff, bro. Um, I want to bring it to what's going on right now. Uh, and I want to know about the inspiration behind your uh, your new book, uh, Follow the Buzzards, Pro Wrestling in the Age of COVID-19. Please tell me about it. Well, in 2020, uh, my last book came out, uh, Too Sweet, uh, Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution. And um, that built up to the first TV taping of Dynamite. Uh, the first TV broadcast of Dynamite. So I followed uh, the history of indie wrestling leading up to AEW being created and signing all these indie darlings. And then um, the final scene in Too Sweet ends with it's Joey Janela, Marco Stunt, Orange Cassidy and Jungle Boy uh, worked for GCW, the, the popular New Jersey indie game changer wrestling in Asbury Park, New Jersey. And then they all get into a car and they drive down to um, 
Washington DC for the premier uh, Dynamite broadcast. So I knew there had to be uh, a sequel and we agreed to a sequel, the publisher and I. Now I thought the sequel would be what happens on the Indies with, uh, you know, aid in the age of AEW. And, you know, if you were writing it now, that would include Ring of Honor being sold to Tony Khan and, you know, the Forbidden Door and, you know, between New Japan and AAA and Rev Pro and AEW. And um, WWE saying that they weren't going to use indie guys anymore. And now it's the Triple H era. And, you know, the philosophy seems to be shifting back to what we saw in the black and gold era of, of NXT. But COVID happened. And even though a lot of the stuff I just mentioned is in the book, no one anticipated that there would be an international pandemic. And through it all, professional wrestling endured. How did professional wrestling endure? So I speak about AEW putting talent in the stands in Daly's place, which was an open amphitheater, fortunately. So, you know, uh, their bacteria could fly into the air and creating a mood that was not unlike the old studio wrestling shows. And WWE uh, having a, an empty arena WrestleMania, but they didn't create the cinematic match at that point. It had existed previously, but leaning on the cinematic match and how different some of the cinematic matches were. Like if you look at WrestleMania 36, you had Undertaker against AJ Styles, which is like a Western movie. And then you had uh, Bray Wyatt and John Cena. And that was like watching Eraserhead. It was like an art film. And, um, and then of course you had the Thunderdome. You had fans on LED screens surrounding uh, the, 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 uh, the ring. And you know, someone told me recently who had read the book, it doesn't see, it seems like so long ago, we've forgotten about what it was like to watch, you know, fans wrestle in an empty arena. You know, uh, fans wrestle, to see a wrestling show in an empty arena, you know, um, to watch the, the Thunderdome and understand like, okay, they're battling in front of LED screens. And, um, you know, all these uh, special, I wouldn't call them concessions, yeah, concessions, concessions to the pandemic that had to be made, but how the fan interest was maintained. And then I also spoke to a lot of people on the Indies. So GCW, which I previously mentioned, and I attended these shows, you know, they were doing afternoon shows at a park in uh, Indianapolis with social distancing, uh, social distance pods. So there'd be like a family of six would sit together here and then there'd be a, a, a wide space and then there'd be another pod with another group of people. And Warrior Wrestling in Chicago, they used a, of, a, a high school football field. So they could spread people out outdoors all over the, all over the field and all over the bleachers. And you know, I was talking to wrestlers who were saying things like, wow, it's been three months or four months since I've been hit. It's going to feel nice to get hit again. Remember Jeff Cobb telling me that he worked an empty arena show for uh, 
NJPW Strong, which was New Japan's US-based promotion. And he said to his opponent, give me a nice high back body drop. And he hit that canvas and he's like, wow, now my back's not calloused. I forgot how much that hurts <laughs> you know, to take a move like that when you haven't taken it in four months. So um, that's really what it's about. And obviously COVID-19 still exists. And at a certain point I had to cut it off. But, you know, people are, I, I describe being at WrestleMania 37 when they, uh, when fans were back at the stadium, but there was still uh, wooden cutouts of fans there because it there was still some social distancing measures in place. And then I described being back at the first uh, AEW Roadshow with live fans. And uh, then it ends around the time of, I start the book on January 1st, 2020, when it seems to be the start of perhaps the most exciting era in professional wrestling. And I basically ended around January 1st, 2022, where uh, WWE has its uh, premium event or you know, pay-per-view and Roman Reigns has COVID and they compensate. And Brock Lesnar emerges with the title and the road to WrestleMania continues. Like, and COVID's gonna be here and wrestling's gonna be here. And uh, they're, they're gonna find a way to coexist. That's pretty much the story that I'm telling in this book. And again, the book is called Follow the Buzzards, Pro Wrestling in the Age of COVID-19. Release date is October uh, 2022. I'm imagining it'll be a few weeks before some of the books uh, end up in Australia, but uh, you can order, you can pre-order now. And if there's enough of a demand, I'll come down there and sign some books for you guys. <laughs> Excellent, Keith. Well, uh, I'll ensure that when this goes out on YouTube, that all the information will be on the description on YouTube. So everyone, please check out where to find it. Inspiration, uh, sorry, the inspirational uh, one and only Keith Greenberg and his Follow the Buzzers Pro Wrestling in the Age of COVID-19. This has really been awesome, Keith. I'm having so much fun. And I've got a couple more questions for you, if that's cool. Sure. Um, yeah. One thing I know that you're a part of, and I know the one, the, the edition that I have isn't one that you were actually part of, but you, you, you no, did. No, that's not. I, I've written two other, co-written two other. You've co-written some other WWE encyclopedias. It's, it's a big book. I, I just yeah. want to know how long that takes to get something like that. Uh, not that long. Uh, Steve Pantaleo, who actually works at WWE, and I think has co-written all the editions, um, he had a very uh, organized system. He had an Excel spreadsheet, and we discussed it. Like, okay, who's going to take what? And I remember I said, I want the old timers and the new guys, because my whole thing is I never want to be a nostalgia act. I love the nostalgia, but I don't want to be one of these guys who once you get to, you know, the mid 1990s, they, you know, they're useless. So I'm like, I want to write about the NXT guys and I yeah. want to write about the history of NXT. I want to write about the future. So I'll take the past and I'll take the, the, uh, the, the future. And um, 
we split it up and there, there was another writer involved as well. And that was how we did it. And uh, it was a tight deadline. Steve was a little nervous, but uh, you know, we pulled it off and I'm very proud of that. And now I can look anybody in the eye and say, you're looking at the man who wrote the book on professional wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> excellent stuff Keith. excellent uh something else you mentioned before and i i was wondering if uh you know i could try and squeeze this answer out of you what happened with the iron sheiks book because uh the quote that i read on the internet was those who read it have called the book the greatest unpublished treasure in wrestling journalism and that's true that, 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 <laughs> that, that's a fact um uh i um I was asked to do the book when the Iron Sheik was on the show called the Howard Stern Show in the US. So he was on kind of like shock radio. And he was not at his best at that time and would curse and, you know, call people demeaning names and get himself into situations. And when I first wrote the book with him, it was a fun book, there were great stories but he still had a drug issue. He still had drug issues. And um, WWE, it was, Simon & Schuster was the publisher, but everything had to go through WWE. Oh. I remember one of their lawyers calling me and saying, I mean, is there any way to sanitize this? It's like, not really. I mean, this is kind of the essence of who the guy is. And like that, that version ended with him crying because his cable television was cut off and he couldn't watch the Olympics. And it's like, that's, this is a fucking drag. Sorry, I used cur a curse word. This is a drag, man. You know, this isn't <laughs> like fun. And so um, they paid me, they paid him. And I thought the project was over. A couple of years pass. He kicks drugs. He, um, he goes up to Toronto for something. And um, Playboy magazine contacts me and they say, we want you to do like a day in the life of the Iron Sheik. So I go with him to this bachelor party in Toronto and it was a pretty good time, uh, you know, and now he was drug free. He wasn't uh, using anymore. He was healthier, certainly more level-headed, still a lot of fun, still kind of outrageous, um, still warm and sincere. Um, and because I know that side of him. I've seen him, you know, very tender with his family and with certain fans and with other talent, um, you know, and I get a call from WWE, now ECW Press, which has published three of my other books since then. Now ECW Press in Toronto wants to do the Iron Sheet book. And so I rewrite it, you know, and uh, somebody I wasn't told to, but I was told it was someone very high up and it wasn't Vince, uh, read the book and said, look, there's stories about, you know, smuggling cocaine over the border and, you know, uh, getting stopped by the cops with Piper while they're like grinding pills and coke into a mortar and pestle. And, you know, there's stories about groupies getting clotheslined in hotels. Like, <laughs> how does this help our brand? And, you know, I know the theme of WWE has been in recent years, we put smiles on people's faces, but I guess it was putting the wrong kinds of smiles on people's faces. <laughs> and once again, I was paid. And once again, <laughs> the book wasn't published. And shockingly, 
uh, A&E is doing a documentary on the Iron Sheik, and they asked me to participate. And I was told that um, there's a copy of, there's a couple of copies of the book, which I don't have. And WWE has some of them and they gave it to the producers. And so they got to read the book. And then I had to look like the Word document up on my laptop, but they had the, they had the actual book. And uh, I told all those stories again. So if I can tell those stories on TV, why can't the book be published? And I think I might be um, jinxing myself, but you know, things are changing quickly in the world of professional wrestling. And you just may see that book on shelves one day. <laughs> uh, unbelievable. Thank you for sharing all that. Uh, getting right to the tail end here, Keith, one question I have for you outside of writing and all this stuff that you've done, more so just your, your personal taste and opinion. What constitutes the perfect episode of wrestling television for you? Uh, a mixture between uh, great technical matches and great comedy. Excellent. Um, what do you love and what do you also dislike most about pro wrestling? Um, anything that takes you out of your sense of disbelief. Yep, I can get, I get you with that one. And um, also what's one thing that you would say you love the most about it? Uh, the exuberance that you feel when you see a great card. Excellent. Uh, Right before our final segment here, I want to ask you, um, writers versus bookers, what, what do you prefer? Bookers. Excellent. Cool. Well, uh, Keith, I want to give you the chance here to, to plug anything else that you have going on uh, where people can find you. Uh, the floor is yours. Okay, thank you. Um, well, obviously, I'm going to plug again shamelessly my uh, new book, Follow the Buzzards, Pro Wrestling in the Age of COVID-19. You can uh, find that on any, uh, well, just type it in. It'll come up and you can purchase it any way you like. Uh, my uh, book from 2020, Too Sweet, Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution, same publisher. Uh, I still get messages from people who have just read it. They seem to enjoy it. And you can find me if you type in Keith Elliott Greenberg, you can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter. And, I, I, and I'm on Facebook. But um, I think when I hit like 5,000 uh, friends, they cut me off. I can't yeah. get any new ones. And I'm, I'm getting close, you know, which is really <laughs> remarkable because as a kid, probably one of the reasons I was a wrestling fan was like I was lucky if I had two or three friends. Now I'm close <laughs> to 5,000. <000. laughs> Excellent stuff, Keith. It's time to get to our final segment here on the show, Five Second Frenzy. The first one is, who is your favorite professional wrestler of all time? Terry Funk. Wonderful. Uh, if you could think of one match over the years that you've witnessed, Thane, what is your favorite pro wrestling match you've ever seen? You know, I once saw a great match between Joey Ryan, if we're allowed to say his name, and Orange Cassidy at an indie show. That was pretty good. <laughs> Very cool. Um, uh, moving away from wrestling now, this might be a tough one for you. Do you have a favorite book that you've read? Uh, nonfiction, uh, Studs Lonigan. No, no, fiction, Studs Lonigan. 
uh, Nonfiction in Cold Blood by Truman Wonderful. Capote. Yeah, cool. Uh, do you have a favorite TV show? Uh, the the uh, original Batman show from the 60s. <laughs> cool. I'm sure you and Vince Russo could have a long conversation about that together. Um, favorite film? Uh, I would say uh, Seven Beauties with Giancarlo Giannini. Excellent. Do you have a favorite musical artist or band? Beatles, obviously. Wonderful. Uh, getting away from the arts now, favorite food? Favorite food? Uh, I guess uh, any type of Italian cuisine. Excellent. Uh, do you have a favorite place to eat on the road? On the road? Yeah, there's a couple of places. I mean, in Baltimore, uh, there's Sabatino's, not San Martino's. That's a pretty good place. And um, the, the, uh, the Rainbow on Sunset Strip in LA, I, I'm all, I, I always go there. That's super cool. I'm jealous. Uh, I'd like to go there one day. Uh, three to go now here, Keith. Uh, favorite alcoholic beverage, or if you don't drink, just your favorite beverage in general. Oh, I drink. Um, <laughs> well, I, I like bourbon, but uh, you know, sometimes um, it, it, it impacts me pretty quickly. So, uh, you know, a good wheat beer, you know, from Germany is, is always nice. And I have to say this, and I, I say this with all sincerity, I've been drinking that Broken Skull IPA from Stone Cold Steve Austin, and it is really good. And the yeah. alcohol content is a little higher than regular beer. Really? That's why I stay away from IPAs, because they just always knock me on my ass. It's just... Yeah, it will knock you on your ass. Like, it's not like... In the state of Utah, they, um, you, you buy this beer, and the alcohol content is lower. So I can drink like 14 beers in Utah and I'm not even <laughs> feeling it. I drink like two of those Broken Skull IPAs, like I'm ready to be carted home. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, two to go here, Keith. Uh, this is, can be regarded as the naughtiest one of this segment, but can also get some meaningful answers. Favorite female body part, you see a good looking lady, where will Keith's eyes go to first? Um, I would say long legs. Excellent choice. I dig. And the last one, Keith, favorite curse word. Favorite curse word? Fuck. It's <laughs> the best one of all. I remember how excited it was to be a little kid and say that behind, you know, an adult's back. <laughs> awesome. Well, Keith Greenberg, thank you so much for your time, uh, for joining me on the show here, talking a little bit about your time and in, in, in what you've done in professional wrestling and, and outside of it. Uh, so it really means a lot to me uh, to, to have the opportunity to speak to you today. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Keith. And thank all of you uh, out there for checking us out on the Insiders Edge podcast. I'm California. This is Keith Greenberg, and we will see you down the road. Thank you.